Good morning. Welcome to Valley Baptist. Nate hates it when I do this, which is why I do it. Not really. Um, Go ahead and turn to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be finishing up the book of Titus today. And as you're turning there, I do want to thank you all so much for allowing me to come here and to preach. Uh, I really appreciate appreciate the opportunity. And like Gunnar said, that's not something that a lot of guys my age have the chance to do. Um, And I'll say a little bit more about this later, but there are a lot of reasons that I'm really, really thankful to be here at Valley Baptist, the church I grew up in. Um, And I do want to say that I'm especially grateful to Gunnar. I don't know where he is, but he has kept me from saying a lot of really stupid stuff. Um, (laughs) The advice he gives me every week, you know, he might feel like he's beating me up, but it's really, really helpful. So all that to say, you know, I appreciate him. Um, He's a really good pastor. So if you're at Titus 3, we're looking at verses 9 through 15. I'll go ahead and read the text, and we'll pray and get started. So Titus 3, 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the time that you've given us to study it. I thank you for this church, for their graciousness, and I pray that as we finish up this study of the book of Titus, we would learn well, we would understand the main points of the book, and we would let these truths, the truths of your word, impact us deeply. And I pray all this in your name. Amen. So, as we wrap up the book of Titus today, I do want to go back and kind of revisit some of the stuff we've already learned, because... Today's passage, in many ways, is a summary of the entire book of Titus. And that's pretty common in books of the New Testament. There were A lot of these were written as letters. And in letters at that time, in the first century AD, it was common for the ending of the letter to be a broad summary. And so, by looking back at what we've already learned, we can learn about some of these main themes, the things that are mentioned here at the end of the book, and we can understand in greater detail how they apply. So the first thing I want to look at is the purpose of the book. So if you remember six weeks ago, when I first pre- started preaching in Titus, we looked at Titus 1.5, and I said that that verse is kind of a summary statement for the entire book. So go ahead and turn there. I want to read that just so we have it fresh in our minds. Titus 1.5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so what we see here is Paul's explanation to Titus of the reason he had left him in Crete. He had two jobs, two main jobs. He had to set in order the things that remained, which refers to um, correcting false teachers who were damaging the, the witness of the gospel. But then he also had to appoint elders who would push the gospel forward. So he wanted to stop the people who were damaging the gospel, and he wanted to set up people to bring the gospel to others. And so we see that the root issue is the advancement of the gospel. 
Paul wanted the gospel to go out to those who hadn't heard it, but he also wanted those who had heard it to hear a fresh and new reminder of it. He wanted to protect the integrity of the gospel, and for him, that meant he had to show how the gospel impacts the lives of Christians and non-Christians alike. And so he wrote this book to kind of address some of the main issues, um, to guard against some of these issues that were related to the gospel, especially with false teachers. And so remember, we learned that false teachers were causing all manner of controversy. They were causing issues for the church. They were preaching these Jewish myths. And that refers to parts of the Old Testament law that they were saying had to be followed by New Testament Christians. But the Bible, the, the book of Titus and Paul says, no, that's not true. Like These things do not have to be followed by New Testament Christians, by Gentile Christians. And he wanted to make that point really clear. Look at Titus 1.9. Paul says, these are qualifications for the elders. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he, the overseer or elder, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we see that these people are to exhort, build up the church with the sound doctrine, but they're also to refute those who contradict, the false teachers. And that's really important. And that shows us how Paul wanted Titus to understand this responsibility of having solid teachers in the church, godly teachers. And we learned about what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And a mature Christian is the type of person that Paul wanted to serve as an overseer. We saw these, these people defined in Titus chapter 2 and chapter 3 as um, godly men um, who were able to defend the gospel, able to help those in the church understand the gospel, people who know the truths of the gospel, and they can, they can uh, teach these things, and they can rebuke those who teach things that are contrary to the truths. Like I said, the root issue is the gospel. Now, if you were to walk out the doors of this church today, and you go to lunch, wherever you go, and someone happens to ask you what the gospel is, they ask you to explain the gospel. Could you do it? Could you give a solid explanation of the gospel today? I want to spend a couple minutes understanding what the gospel is because it's so important. It tells us how to be saved. It tells us how to live. And I've already defined these two things as kind of the main themes of the book of Titus. Salvation, how to be saved, and sanctification, how to live. So let's look at what the gospel is. And we see in the book of Titus a very detailed, lengthy explanation of the gospel. But I want to flip over to 1 Corinthians. We're looking for 1 Corinthians 15. Because what we see there is a really kind of simplified, boiled-down statement of the gospel, which is really helpful. And so as you turn there, remember that the book of 1 Corinthians was a book written to a church that had some pretty serious issues. Um, Paul wrote the book to address those things, to address their sin, to say, stop it, to tell them to stop living in sin. And he wanted to remind them of the truth of the gospel, to show them how to live their lives. So 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read the first couple of verses, starting verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. So he says, I preach this to you, you know it, you stand and live in this gospel. He's reminding them of these realities. Verse 2, by which 
also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What we see here is Paul's explanation of the gospel in the simplest terms possible. Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised again on the third day, all according to the scriptures. This is what was promised by God to us. And if you believe this, you can be saved. And now, I said this is what's promised by God, and we believe it to be true, but the reality is this is a 2,000-year-old text, and so I can understand you could look at this and say, okay, well, this is 2,000 years ago. Who is Paul? Why does he even, like, why are we to believe him? And I do want to point out, I'm not going to read it, but the next couple of verses, verses 5, 6, and 7, and even 8, Paul mentions a number of different people who saw Jesus with their own eyes. And at the time of his writing, those people were alive. And so he wasn't just going to say, like, these things are true. He said, no, these things are true. These people saw, and if you want to, if you want to know about it, go ask them. He had eyewitnesses to testify to the truth of the gospel. And so if you flip back to Titus, like I said, we've already seen the gospel explained in much uh, much more detail, much, um, much larger terms, but I don't want you to lose sight of the beauty of the simplicity of the gospel. God loved us enough to offer us a way to be saved from our sin, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so with this understanding of the gospel in mind, let's go ahead and dig into the, the last couple of verses of the book of Titus and understand how the gospel impacts us, how it changes our lives. So remember, as we go into Titus 3.9, Paul has just finished explaining the gospel, telling the church that the gospel is a trustworthy statement there in verse chapter 3, verse 8. It's a trustworthy statement. And he says that the gospel is good and profitable for all men. Those two terms especially will become really important for this, today's passage. And so in Titus 3.9, we see the first thing is a command. Avoid foolish controversies. Foolish controversies. This is an important point. Not all controversy is bad. In fact, some controversy is really good and healthy for the church. In the days of the early church, 200, 300, 400 AD, there are many questions that the church needed to answer questions that were extremely important, like, is Jesus Christ fully God and fully man? And how does that work? They had to answer questions about, uh, about the Trinity. How can God be three in one? And these are things that they had to search the scriptures for. They had to wrestle with. They had multiple church councils. And the result of those church councils are what we know today as the creeds or confessions of faith, things that, statements of faith that are not scripture, but are solid and well-written statements that we can hold to. The controversy that they faced forced them to refine their doctrine and to understand exactly what they believed and why they believed it. And to kind of bring this closer to home, I want to share a controversy from my life that has really shaped where I've gone, the direction I've gone, and a huge part of it ties back to this church. About five years ago, I was part of a Bible study 
um, with a couple of my brothers. Um, it was through another church, and I don't want to I don't want to say any names or point any fingers because these people are good people. They love God. They worship God truly. I happen to have a, a theological disagreement with them. That's okay. I can still be friends with them. I can still call them brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what happened is we were in this Bible study, and the guy who was leading it said something that I didn't understand. And so it caught my attention, but I didn't really understand. I, I didn't understand what he said, so I couldn't really ask him to clarify. I didn't know enough to, to ask for any, any clarification. But then the next day in church, I was sitting in that back corner, and Gunnar was preaching, and he said, you know, some people will say this. And he described exactly what the guy had said before, the night before. He said, but I don't believe that's true, and here's why. And he went through the scriptures to show why he doesn't believe that particular doctrine is true. So, of course, at this point, I was confused. I'd heard one person who I trusted the night before say one thing, and I heard Gunner the next day say the exact opposite thing. And so, after the service, I went and talked to Gunner, and I asked him, okay, like, what's going on here? I'm confused. And Gunner was really helpful in offering me books to read helping me like walk through the issues, understand the, the issue. And that week when I was kind of wrestling with that is a huge part of why today I'm studying God's word. I want to become a pastor. I want to teach because I want to be able to explain things similar to the way Gunnar did to help with that kind of question. And so as just a total side note, Gunnar mentioned to me that he absolutely loves it when you all ask questions after a sermon. And I can definitely say I do too. Like, if you have a question about anything I say, please ask me a question. I love answering your questions. Um, and so, anyway, the point there is that the controversy that I faced and not understanding what was going on there and, like, wrestling with the two different doctrines forced me to understand the scriptures better and has ultimately pointed the direct, like, changed the direction of my life and where I plan on going long term. And God has definitely worked in me a lot since then but like I said, I chalk up a lot of my desire to go into ministry to that one week. So with that explanation aside, like controversy is not bad. Paul says foolish controversy is a problem. And Titus says to avoid foolish controversies. And the best illustration I have of foolish controversies comes from my time living in the dorms at school. Uh, when you put 30 college-age guys together, you are going to have some controversies. Because they all think they're right. Um, and they think that anything that they believe automatically trumps anything that anyone else believes. I'm guilty of this as much as anybody else was. But so I, I remember my freshman year, there were about 20 freshmen on a floor with about 30 total guys, and for the first couple of weeks, homework load is easy, um, everyone's kind of getting to know each other, realizing, like, recognizing the differences, and there's no shortage of controversy. Every single night in the public spaces on the floor, there would be an argument, a, a discussion about anything from whether chocolate or vanilla ice cream is better to iPhones or Android phones to you name it. Silly, foolish arguments. And this is what Paul is telling Titus to avoid. The foolish arguments that have no purpose, that have no point. Foolish controversies. Arguing over useless, unimportant things. And he Paul doesn't want Christians to do this. And one point I do want to make really clearly, and I, we met, learned a little bit about this last week, there are times when it's appropriate to be controversial even 
today, especially in, in the realm of like politics. We know that some of, the, some of the things that the Bible tells us to do are not popular with our culture, with our government. But in those things, it is okay to follow the Bible, to be controversial. But also understand that there is an important distinction between holding a biblical point and holding a political point. And be certain that your political points do not negate the gospel. Allow the gospel to shine through. And if you can avoid a political conversation and instead steer it towards a gospel conversation, that is worth it every time. That's a really important distinction. So moving on, still in verse 9. Paul tells Titus to avoid genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. And I don't want to get stuck in the weeds here because all three of these things refer back to the same thing we talked about with the false teachers who are teaching Jewish myths. All of these things are some, they fall under the category of these Jewish myths. They're all foolish controversies. These are things that the Bible does not command that false teachers were saying were necessary. And so remember, back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul calls these false teachers rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. And he calls out those of the circumcision. These are the false teachers. These are the people who are teaching the genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. And Paul says to avoid these things. And we see in the last half of verse 9 the reason. It says, For they are unprofitable and worthless. Does that sound familiar? It should. Turn back to Titus 1.16. The description of those false teachers, people who are defiled and unbelieving. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now turn forward to Titus 1.8, which we looked at last week, which describes the gospel. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. The false teachers are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for every good deed. The gospel motivates us to engage in every good deed. And it is good and profitable for men. Do you see this contrast between what the false teachers are teaching and between what the gospel teaches? That's the contrast that Paul is emphasizing for Titus here in verse 9. These foolish controversies are worthless and unprofitable, but the gospel is good and profitable for all men. And it's important to know that the gospel is profitable for all men, not just those who are saved, not just those who haven't heard the gospel. It saves us, and it also tells us how to live. And this ties back with the idea we've seen throughout the book of Titus of being sensible. Remember we saw that word a lot in chapters 1 and 2, talking about the way that a mature Christian must live. It must be sensible. It's the way that a person needs to act as a result of the gospel. And it's used to describe the... like It's something that's illustrated clearly here. Like I said, controversy is not bad, but we must be sensible so that we don't argue over foolish things. When I lived in the dorms, I had to be sensible 
to avoid those foolish conversations that would keep me up till 3 a.m. or would keep me from doing homework. Being sensible for me in that time meant choosing the right thing to do. Let's move on now to verses 10 and 11. They're both connected. And what we see here is instructions for Titus and how to handle a factious man. And that's not a word we see every day, but it's really simple. It just refers to someone who stirs up arguments or disagreements. It's literally the word for heretic. Someone who teaches things that they should not for sordid gain, like we've seen already in chapters 1 and 2. False teachers. Paul's addressing false teachers one last time here. And so we've seen already, chapter 1, verse 11, that false teachers must be silenced. But then we see in chapter 1, verse 13, that Paul wants these false teachers to be reconciled. He wants them to be reproved so that they may be sound in the faith. His desire is for reconciliation. He doesn't want to just cast someone out. And I really want you to see that his heart here and our heart in today's context should never be to just kick someone out or stop stop talking to someone or throw someone out of the church. Our desire should be for fellowship, for community, and for restoration. But what we see here in Titus 3 is that Paul recognizes that not all will listen to rebuke. Not every person will hear us when we have when we have to tell them the hard truths of the gospel. And he gives us instructions for dealing with these people when they refuse to listen to approval. And he commands Titus, reprove them two times. You give them two warnings. And if they still will not submit to the authority of the gospel, we're to have nothing to do with them, as one translation says. I think that really captures the meaning really well. Have nothing to do with them because they've proven that they are perverted and sinning and they are self-condemned. This is church discipline. And there are other passages in the Bible that go into this in more depth. I don't really have the time to go there and look at them. If you want if you want to talk to me afterwards, I can talk more about that. But the point is, in our churches today, we might have to do, we might have to exercise this to address people who are in sin, address people who are doing the wrong thing. And this is the biblical model for it. You address them twice, and if they still will not heed rebuke, you're to have nothing to do with them. And that's hard. That's really hard. And I know that we don't have anybody like that here at Valley Baptist. I was talking to Gunnar about this just the other day. He said, no, we have a fantastic, wonderful church with wonderful people. And I'm saying that in all honesty, there is nobody here who's like this, who fits this description. But I also know, I have personally, I personally experienced and seen churches where there is someone like this. Someone who causes disputes. They cause problems. And it's not fun. And as I teach this, I hope and pray that, there, that Valley Baptist doesn't experience any issues with this in the future. But if something comes up, remember, Titus 3, 10 and 11. That's where you have to turn to. That's where we get our instructions for this. And it's not easy. It's not fun. But this is what we have to do for unity in the church and for the sake of the gospel. And so now, as we move past that into the last couple of verses of Titus, we see some of Paul's personal concerns. And these are really special. So let's, 
Let's go ahead and read verses 12 through 15 again. Uh, Titus 3, 12 through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So the first thing we see here in verse 12 is that Paul is planning on sending someone to Titus as a replacement. Titus has been working with this church for many years, and Paul wants him to kind of move on, let the church, let the church um, be under the authority of someone else at this point. But he has, says that for a reason. He wants to see Titus. He wants Titus to come visit him. And this really emphasizes Paul's humanness. He was a man just like any of us. He never wanted to be put on a pedestal or seen as more important than anyone else. He wanted to be understood as a man who had needs and desires and wanted companionship, wanted friendship. And this passage helps us to see that, helps us to see these desires for friendship. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7, 6. We've looked at this passage before, um, six weeks ago when I was first going through the relationship that Paul and Titus had. So it's 2 Corinthians 7, 6. And what we see here is Paul's description of the relationship that he and Titus shared, the close friendship that he shared. He says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And what we see here is that Paul has experienced deep, deep sorrow and and just heavy, heavy burdens. But he says here that he was comforted by Titus's coming. And that really illustrates the kind of character that Titus had, the type of person that Titus was, that Paul wanted him there by his side, especially because we know that at the time Paul wrote the book of Titus, he knew that he was winding down, he was going to go to prison, before long he was going to die. But he wanted Titus to be there with him so he could be comforted by Titus. And this reminds me of the fact that serving in ministry really, truly creates a special bond with someone. It reminds me of the first church that I served with in Chicago. I was there for a year. I led worship for them every week. I preached once. That was the day that I prayed the rapture would come. Um, but it reminds me of that church. I left there two years ago. It was on good terms. I just had to move on. But this past June, just before I left to come here, I ran into the pastor of that church on the street. This is a true story. Um, ran into him on the street, and we talked for 20 minutes, just catching up after two years. We hadn't seen each other for two years. But because we'd served Christ together, we'd proclaimed the gospel together, we could pick, we could pick up right where we left off. It also makes me think of my friend Brandon. He and I were in the men's choir at Moody for one year together. He was a senior, I was a freshman. And during that year, we traveled to the Midwest, we sang concerts, we preached the gospel. He's been gone for three years, gone from Moody, gone from Chicago for three years. But every time he comes back to Chicago, every time he visits, I make an effort to sit down with him, get lunch with him, get coffee, whatever, just to catch up. Because 
we have that we have a special bond because we've done ministry together. And I'm certain Gunner could could back me up on this, just say like, hey, yeah, people you've served with in ministry, you build a special bond. <clears throat> and this is what Paul's expressing to Titus. This close, this desire for that that special bond to be brought back. And this is something we can experience here within the church when we do events like dinner eights or going to a baseball game tonight. These are things that we can do that don't necessarily have a close connection or to the gospel, but because we are all people who love Christ, we can come together and we can enjoy each other's company, and that builds a special bond. So don't underestimate the power and the importance of fellowship outside of the church, Sunday morning church service. And so now in verse 13, we see these two people mentioned, Zenos and Apollos. We don't know much about them. We know that Zenos was a lawyer, which tells us a couple of important things, because he has a Greek name, but he's called a lawyer. But he's not the, which, the fact that he has a Greek name, though, means that he's not the same kind of lawyer as we would have seen back in the Gospels, who were like the scribes and the, the Pharisees and the lawyers. He wasn't an expert in the Jewish law. He was an expert in the Greek law. And that gives us a little insight into why Paul mentions him here. Paul knew that he would be important to the advancement of the gospel because he had this expertise in the Greek law. He would be helpful to Paul so that he could understand how best to preach the gospel. And so what we see here is that Paul knows that they're important to the gospel and he wants the people of the church, at, the churches in Crete to take care of them. Help them so that nothing is lacking for them. And this reminds me of this church and the way we take care of our missionaries. Gunnar was talking about it a little bit earlier, but I, let me tell you, I have bragged many times on Valley Baptist Church on the way we take care of our missionaries because I've seen other churches that do not do a very good job of taking care of their missionaries. And these are people who are preaching the gospel on a daily basis. We should take good care of them. And this church does this really, really well. You know, we send financial support, yes. But I think even more importantly than that, we are available to them. We send them encouragement, encouragements. I've seen care packages go out. I've seen Gunner and a couple other people just travel all over the world to visit missionaries and to encourage them. And when they come into town, we take good care of them. We throw parties for them. We take good care of our missionaries. So Valley Baptist Church, good work. This is, we are doing what this verse commands. And as I say all that, I also want to say thank you because I have experienced that support as well. I have experienced, I know that there are many of you here who pray for me, and I'm deeply thankful for that. I've also received financial support in the past, and I'm deeply thankful for that. And in much the same way, this is what Paul is telling Titus to do, to go out to help these people who are advancing the gospel. And so now with his final verse, Paul shows his humanness one more time by saying, all those who are with him, greet them. And he asks Titus to greet all those who love them in the faith. And he closes with this statement, grace be with you all. Flip back to Titus 1. We see in Titus 1.4, he includes grace in his greeting. Now turn to Titus 2.11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
And now here at the end of the book, we see grace be with you all. And I want to emphasize this theme of grace that runs throughout the entire book of Titus. Grace is important. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God is what saves us. This is really important for those of us who have accepted Christ and for those of us who have not. And I want to make sure that the gospel is crystal clear here. If you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, know that Christ died for you. He was buried and he rose again to take away your sin and to save you. For those of you here who are saved, give glory to God. He has done much in you. He has saved you. And let that grace that he has given you work in you to produce good deeds and to motivate you to live more like Christ. As Christians, one of the things that we are called to do is to protect and guard grace. And this comes out when we look at any cult, any offshoot of Christianity, because I guarantee you every single cult, every single offshoot, suffers from a lack or a misunderstanding of grace. Grace is critically important to the life of the church. So guard it, protect it. And I pray that all these things are true for you, that you would know the grace of God. That the grace of God would work in you, that you would feel it, you would understand it, and that it would change the way you live every day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that through your grace you have offered salvation to all men. Give us the faith to accept this gift. Allow us the strength to live in it. Allow us to understand how it must impact our lives every day. And I pray for everyone here at Valley Baptist Church that they would know and experience your grace. I thank you for how faithfully they serve you and how faithfully they follow your word. And I pray that you'd bless us and be with us today. And I pray all these things in your name.